the Cambridge Marketing Podcast with Kiran Kapoor, brought to you by Cambridge Marketing College. See their range of courses and apprenticeships at marketingcollege.com. Hello and welcome. This week we are talking all about marketing food and my guest is Vari Russell, who has this wonderful description on her LinkedIn profile as a lifelong foodie who's made a career in this area. Vari, welcome. Tell me about being a lifelong foodie and how how you've managed to carve this career in an area that you're obviously interested in. Firstly, thank you for having me. Um, I have, as my mother will vouch for, always had a sweet tooth and <laughs> I applied for a job. My husband was posted in the RAF up to RAF Marham about 24 years ago and there were a number of jobs um, available up at Lancaster Way Business Park in Ely um, for the John Lusty group. So I went for what I thought was one interview and had five which was a little bit of a surprise, um, <laughs> and then was phoned uh, later on that week to say, which one would you like? And I'd interviewed to work with pasta, I'd interviewed to work in technical, um, and then another one with sweets and, and snacks. Unsurprisingly, I went for the sweets and snacks. So I spent a, a number of years working on Tesco Finest Belgian Chocolates, did the first Tesco Finest Easter Egg, um, and did a huge amount within that confectionery space for... Tesco, Sainsbury's, Waitrose, Summerfield. Um, so that's kind of where my foodie route started, more in MPD than marketing. Um, and then it evolved from there to various different organisations doing all sorts of wonderful things with food and drink across the journey. You use the phrase M more MPD, not marketing. So what's MPD? Um, so it was more about the new product development. So we spent a huge amount of time every Christmas analysing what the competitors had done to each of the different retailers and then looking at how we could make something even more exciting even more appealing to the consumer to come back and buy the following year so there are statistics about food marketing that in new product development a, a huge proportion of new products just never uh, only ever have the one run and things which always seems incredible to me is that actually true Yes, sadly it is. There is a huge amount of products that never really reach their full potential. Um, and it's quite interesting because you get to see these new startups all the time, um, which is lovely. And some of them really thrive and others don't. So, But one thing that small, smaller producers have the huge benefit of is the fact that they can react to trends. So if you're working for the likes of Procter & Gamble or Unilever, you can't react to those trends that quickly because there's a, a standard um product development process in place and therefore you can't rush these things so it's it's great because you can be innovative you can be reactive and you can you know turn on a sixpence you said very cheerfully you're working for one company but you're producing ranges for tesco's finest and sainsbury's and other things so for people that haven't worked in food how does how does that work how does the market work for that so there's kind of two routes. You'd either do a branded option. So therefore you are all about building your brand, whether that's direct to consumer and wholesale, which is probably the most common model. And then there is the own label market, which is worth millions and millions of pounds because there are different tiers of own labels. So you've got the basics range, you've got then the standard range, and then you've got the finest or an equivalent depending on the supermarket so each year you get the opportunity to pitch for that um, that body of work 
um, and you go in and you present your different products for those different opportunities um, and then you get a yay or a nay but it is incredibly time consuming and um, we were working on Christmas for probably about 70% of the year so when we all sit down and go into or go into store and buy our sugared almonds or whatever we're buying for Christmas the work that's gone into that is you know seven to nine months in the making so you're almost pre preparing for the following Christmas, the previous Christmas, because by the time you've yeah. done it, created it, it, then it's in the shops in time for Christmas. That would be a whole year, wouldn't it? it yeah, it, sadly it is. And I remember vividly being phoned by the Tesco's PR department asking how they could spin, how much packaging and things we were buying. And I had to calculate how much ribbon I had ordered to wrap around the Tesco <laughs> finest Belgian chocolates. And it was London to Bristol twice. Wow. <laughs> so yeah it was it's really weird how the kind of food industry works it's well it's like any industry you have to pull out the really weird and wonderful PR and marketing facts to get the hook to get the attention to create something a bit different okay so I'd, I want to come on to direct to consumers but I really want to stay in own label at the moment because I think it's an area that most people don't know about so mm -hmm. What happens? Does the te does the supermarket come to the manufacturer with an idea, or does it work the other way around, or is it does it vary? It varies. I would say it was a combination of the two. We were one of the large at the time. We were one of the largest importers and distributors in the UK, um, and then I left John Lusty when they went into administration and went and joined Winterbotham and Derby, who are still a very big player in the market. So we would be going to trade shows, scouting out new producers that we wanted to work with that we felt had the bandwidth and the breadth and the depth of product and the capabilities um, as well as the technical um, requirements so for an O-label factory you have to have a minimum of a salsa accreditation um, but ideally you have BRC so those are bodies that accreditate and assess factories for their all the criteria that you would want around health and safety. Um, so we would go with a number of ideas we'd then trend spot on colours um, and work with the art house teams to make sure that the, the branding and the colours and that that kind of look for Christmas was right or Valentine's Day or Mother's Day or Easter. Um, and then we would look at things that were going on in the toiletries sector as to whether the packaging could be replicated for, say, an Easter egg. Um, yeah, so it's been it's been great fun. And then you'd look at trends in flavour profiles as well. So there's various trend documents that come out on a monthly and quarterly basis by people like the food people um, and they're predicting what trends we're going to be enjoying next um, so we would do a lot of research around the trends and then and I remember vividly doing a Swiss chocolate selection I think it was for Tesco's um, and so we had to research what cocktails were going to be the next big thing and I remember sitting basically eating chocolates um, and assessing whether the mojito was you know good enough to send into Tesco's so yeah it was a fun job. <laughs> I can imagine lots of people like me are sitting here thinking, can I have a job like that? Excellent. So <laughs> You do get sick of chocolate, though, to be fair. And, you know, it sounds amazing, but actually, yeah, it's, yeah, you fly out to Belgium, you're in a factory from seven in the morning, you're there with the customer, you're getting the job done, and then you fly home again. And you, we've been to all parts of Europe on, you know, sourcing and production runs, and you don't see it. 
so yes you do get to eat a lot of chocolate and snacks but um it would be nice to see the places you go to as well <laughs> so i'm again i'm intrigued by the trend spotting and you said something absolutely fascinating you said we look at toiletries and see if we can replicate the packaging can you explain yeah. that so um there was a chapter where a lot of the toiletries packaging was using plastic um mm -hmm. obviously plastic isn't quite so in vogue at this particular stage but they did a lot of cylindrical packaging and we did a tesco finest easter egg in a cylinder um of clear plastic with frosting top and bottom and it meant then we could place the chocolates around the egg so transporting easter eggs is a nightmare um because they have a really high breakage rate and you can't guarantee that they're going to get from a to b and b in one um, one piece so they often involve a lot of uh fixtures and fittings within the packaging but at the same time as us doing this the new packaging waste regulations came in so we were really mindful of how much packaging we used um but yeah there's loads of there's a thing called a billy blob which is those sticky dots that you often get where you get a perfume sample stuck to a magazine we would mm -hmm. use those in the packaging to make sure that the clams that held the truffles around the bottom of the egg were held as securely as possible so they couldn't move then the egg was put in then another um pet piece was put in at the top so we looked at how toiletries did it and how they'd created that theater and shelf presence um because that's really important if you're there's a lot of easter eggs at easter and you have to create <laughs> shelf presence that ensures your egg is the one that they pick up and if you're a brand it's a it's like going on a blind date because if they don't know your brand, you have 30 seconds to get them to buy you over a Kit Kat egg, for example. So it's about creating enough appeal, but knowing who your customer is and what makes them tick. Is plastic going to be a complete switch off for them or, uh, or are they going to prefer board? So it, it was, yeah, it was really fascinating. So I, I think, again, this is from an outsider's perspective, the idea that you're in food marketing, um, and the idea that you get to go to food factories and taste taste chocolate, A, sounds wonderful, and B, sounds what we expect. But I don't think I had realised how much packaging thought went into the marketing side. Yeah, definitely. I don't think packaging can be ignored anymore. There was a, a period where people just bought the brand because it was the brand. Um, but mm. now with... You have to make sure you've got FSA accreditation on your pack on your board to make sure that you're as environmentally friendly as possible. You're using the minimal plastic. You've got all the recycling messaging where appropriate on the back of pack. Consumers really, really care about this now. And mm -hmm. there is no plan B, is there, for planet, mm. you know? So we need to do what we can. And brands are becoming more and more responsible for that with initiatives like 1% for the Planet or B Corp. Those are guiding brands on how to be, be performing in the best practices. Excellent. So you, I said we'd talk about the other part of, of um, the food industry. So you mentioned there was the own own label and then there mm -hmm. was the um, direct to consumer or the sort of more the more sort of branding or, or niche product area. So can we talk a little bit about that side of it? Because I know you're an, you're an expert in this area as well. So how does that side of the marketing work? That normally involves more guerrilla marketing um, and also bigger budgets so 
for the likes of Unilever or Brewdog, they have big budgets that they sign off and they will have strategic objectives. But there is, if you're marketing within a retail environment, there is an expectation that you will contribute to that marketing budget. So for example, Acado, on average, it's gonna cost you 10 grand a year in marketing support or free product support to secure and maintain that listing and drive those sales forward. So a lot of brands will go, it's fine, I've got a listing in a supermarket, that's it, my job's done. It's not, it's about creating that pull through. So then that pulls into your consumer marketing because you need to let your consumers know that you are in Marks and Spencers or you are in Sainsbury's. And it's about making sure that they know to go and buy it in store or they can buy Mm -hmm. it online um and then it's whether you want to fund things like gondola ends so they're the ends at the end of the aisle and they're quite expensive prime space so you can um arrange you know opportunities on those gondola ends it's whether then you look at doing any um advertorials or editorial in the supermarkets magazines um and do social media posts as well so the stuff with the supermarkets like those things i've just mentioned are expensive but are very lucrative if you have the right message and the right call to action. Um, I would say now more than ever, authenticity is absolutely paramount in your marketing of any brand. Consumers are really, really savvy. They're shopping with their wallets, but they're Mm -hmm. also shopping on their green credentials. So if, if you're a brand trying to you know, be as green as possible, you really have got to put your money where your mouth is and be as green as possible because consumers will call you out. So whereas before in years gone by, you could have said a message, consumers wouldn't have necessarily checked everything. They are checking everything now. That's that's really interesting. So, okay, I, there's a couple of things there I want to explore and I do want to come on to the sustainability side because it, it's, it's clearly a very key area. You said that... Um, so people like Unilever or Brewdog would contribute to retail and they'd be expected to put up about £10,000 a year. Is that mm-hmm. per supermarket or is that across yeah. supermarkets? It's, it's no, per it's supermarket. Yeah. So you would be invited wow. to do a number of promotions per year to keep your product front and fore in the consumer's eye. Um, and then, yeah, so for example, there's massive opportunities around Father's Day to sell beer, um, but equally, then, if there's a World Cup, you you know, it's another opportunity. So they will have a marketing calendar um, where they see the best opportunities for their customers. And then the buyers will be tasked with having those conversations with their suppliers to see what funding they can get to maximise those opportunities. So you'd be expected to fund the promotion. So if it was a three for two, you would fund that mechanic. Um, and then also put into the marketing pot to build the brand, build the category and drive sales of your products. Wow. OK. <laughs> so it's not it's not as straightforward as people think it is. People think yeah. it's about getting a listing and that does all the work mm-hmm. for you. It's so much more than that. And with Ocado, they do a, they have a whole suite of marketing tools that you can use and you can do free sampling. But it isn't free. It's free to the end user, but it costs mm-hmm. you 80, 90p plus the cost of the product per sample. And the same with think people like HelloFresh. They're great opportunity. If you've got the marketing budget, 
to get product in hand is the best way of getting people to try your product and potentially buy it. But there are costs associated to that. Okay, so I'm starting to realise when I walk around the supermarket and there's a, um, I don't know, a shelf wobble or as you said, a gondola aisle, that, that actually that's a huge amount of budget from the brand that has gone into it. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so um, what about the other side of the market of the marketplace? So small brands, how do, you know, not every brand is going to be able to afford 10,000 per annum to put behind a marketing budget, having already committed to getting themselves into the supermarket. So what do smaller brands do? How do they get market market share? I think Dash is probably one of the best examples of this. They are smashing it out of the park in terms of guerrilla marketing. What they did for the court case when Harry came over and wasn't it, he didn't turn up for his first day at court. They mm-hmm. did. They launched their new variant of their drink. They were all in dungaroo suits um, that were the same colour as the brand. And it said, Harry hasn't turned up, but we have with our new lime. <laughs> I think it was a lime flavoured. Um, and they are literally smashing it out of the park. They are there front and fore. They're driving the cans in hands experience. So they were giving drinks to all of the photographers and um, film crews that were there. Um, and it, yeah, and they filmed it all. So you can do some really clever things on not a lot of budget, um, but it's about having the foresight to plan and being very reactive, but mm. proactively reactive um, and getting out there and being disruptive, but in a fun and engaging way. Yes, they were everywhere because reporters had nothing else to report about. Harry hadn't turned up. Yeah, I mean, it was genius. It really was genius. So, um, yeah, and they are really clever at just doing pop-ups in the park and just getting product in hand. Um, And it's for most people, brands are unknown unless they've been, you know, in their kind of infancy and inception and met them at a farmer's market or met them at a trade show. So Mm. it is about getting your brand out there and doing collaborations with other people. So a lot of brands are looking at social media collaborations because that drives a new audience. Um, And then it's about capturing the data and then nurturing that data through various different tools like Klaviyo or MailChimp to create those nurture trails so that when you've met a customer virtually or in person, you're following up and you're building your tribe. They're getting into the essence of your brand and therefore hopefully at some point they will shop. Um, And I think that that has changed since the pandemic. Um, a lot more brands had to sell direct to consumers. And historically, mm-hmm. I would have said it was more about multiple listings than it was about direct to consumer. Vari, that's been absolutely amazing. It was a really fascinating um, insight into food marketing, an area that lots of us know very little about. Thank you so much for your time and, and insight there. And um. We didn't get a chance to ask about your grub club, but um, I know that you you run this club. It very very briefly. What is that? It is a delicious networking group for foodies and associated businesses. So if you want to come along, um, all the details are on the website. That's fabulous, Vari Russell. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. The Cambridge Marketing Podcast from Cambridge Marketing College. Training marketing and PR professionals across the globe.